Welcome to the Military History Verbalized podcast. And today we have a special guest. The first time we have a highly published author. We have Dennis Gian Greco. Yes, published under DM Gian Greco. And Mr. Gian Greco, could you give us a, sh a short introduction about your professional background, please? Oh, uh, let's see. I was uh, for 20 years a uh, editor an editor over at uh, Military Review at the uh, Army's Command and General Staff College uh, over at Fort Leavenworth, which is just up the road from here. And uh, it's uh, basically, it, it's the Army's professional journal. Uh, it's been uh, in existence since about 1922. And uh, it is uh, geared towards field grade officers. That's uh, majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels, uh, goes... Uh, to all general officers, and in, and in terms of paid subscribers, uh, the largest bulk of, act of people who actually pay for it in order to make sure that they get a copy are captains with hopes of becoming field-grade officers. <laughs> and then later on, I was uh, doing uh, additional work for uh, the Foreign Military Studies Office, also up at Fort Leavenworth, Uh, did uh, the eyewitness series for Barnes and Noble, done about a dozen, actually, I guess it's a little more than that now, books. And, uh, you know, hey, I, ha I have great fun. That's always important, yeah. So, <laughs> so you, you're basically, your, your customers are to a large, or were to a large degree mainly military professionals. Yeah, principally, yeah, yeah. Well, it was, yeah, the, the customers were essentially, the basic customers were field grade officers and general officers. Okay, that's, that's a very nice customer base to have. <laughs> and today we will talk mainly about your, your book, Hell to Pay, which recently was um, published in the second edition, which was highly expanded by Naval Institute Press. I should hear. Yeah, there was a considerable amount of material in there that I would have liked to have had uh, early, uh, you know, earlier on. But you know, deadlines are deadlines, and the uh, the the Soviet material was just way too complex to be. I just couldn't make the deadline. Yeah, a friend of mine got the book, the second edition, and he had the, the first edition, and he he he, he tweeted uh, he posted on Twitter and said, oh my God, it's most, almost double the size or something. This will be great reading. Yeah, the, the material, interestingly enough, and I hadn't expected this because it's pretty much straight up and down out of uh, the reports of General MacArthur, which is, uh, it's, uh, well, if you count this, the volume one supplement, it's, it's five very large volumes, and it's been pretty well uh, missed by a lot of historians. Uh, because it was published in 1950, about uh, two months before the Korean War opened up, and uh, it never really got much in the way of a distribution. But one of the things that's in the new volume, as an as an appendices, is uh, is an appendix, is the account taken from two portions of the uh, uh, the reports of General MacArthur on. Uh, Blacklist, the insertion of uh, the almost ad hoc insertion of U.S. Uh, uh, forces into Japan. Very quickly done affair. Uh, the mix of units uh, has has professional soldiers 
uh, almost agog at how these uh, these units were put together and sequenced in. And, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the reactions of the Japanese and the cooperation with the Japanese, the uh, preoccupation uh, conference with uh, Japanese senior leadership in Manila. It was not something that really there had been much coverage on before. So uh, uh, I was glad to get that in. The two new Soviet chapters, which is probably what he mostly, uh, uh, your, your friend probably mostly noticed, uh, chapters 11 and 17. Uh, chapter 11 being on the very, very extensive uh, U.S. support for the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, and uh, also, and then 17, which is on the the plans of the various allies and also the Japanese on the defense for uh, the uh, uh, the various plans for assaulting the northernmost uh, island of Hokkaido and the Japanese defense plans and how things eventually played out for the Soviets uh, in, in the Kryl Islands and Sakhalin and so forth. So there was a lot of Soviet material that I just couldn't, uh, I just couldn't get, I just couldn't get to because, you know, you have ongoing projects, deadlines to meet and, uh, you know, goodness, uh, it was it was too much. I originally intended to do that in one chapter, and boy, that sure turned out to be something that wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and, and this is very important for, for people who want to get the book held to pay, be sure to get the second edition, because with some books, the second edition is basically the same, but here is a, a quite a oh, yeah, substantial yeah. amount it's, of it's, difference. Uh, yeah, the, the usual impression of a so-called expanded edition is that you know it's well let's be honest in in, in terms of most expanded uh editions it's it's really a situation where the publisher is trying to wring out more money uh from a book that they've already paid for and there's often just just a little bit a little bit of something so that they can say it's expanded. In this particular case, the darn thing actually is expanded. They had to treat it. it there was so much new material that's also integrated in, well, the material having to do with uh, Berlin, for example. That's a good that's a good example right there. There's so much new materi material integrated in, and this is probably what your friend was, was getting at, too, that it's a lot. It's it's literally about double the size now. Same title, but in a way, it kind of worked against the book because uh, the the tendency of most people they're so used to getting ripped off by so-called expanded editions that aren't expanded editions that they probably just. I think uh, some people may have thought that this was just uh, another. Uh, oh, how would you say marketing? Come on, but yeah, you're, he, he's right. It's it's uh, there's there's a, a very considerable amount of new material in there. And it's not just going over uh, previous, uh, previously discussed matters. It's actually new. <laughs> so just couldn't fit it in before. You mentioned the, the chapter about Berlin. I think it's number four or eight. And what I found very interesting is the, that you expand or explain very well the interdependence between the European fiat of operations and the Pacific fiat of operations, which is barely mentioned. And I... You, you, you told me this in the email and then I looked up in, in my books and glanced a bit over it and I, I couldn't find it in any other book so far. 
So, so what were the main problems that the European theater of operations influenced the Pacific theater of operations in terms of manpower and the global war? Well, I'll get to that, but I'll preface it with uh, noting that what what you see is not an uncommon uh, thing in military, uh, not uncommon, uh, not uncommon in, in military histories in general. Uh, and you've undoubtedly run across this, you know, in in your own uh, work here. Is that, frankly, people don't. Logistics is uh, logistics is something that we were dealing with, obviously, to a, a very great extent. Uh, logistical realities up at uh, you know Fort Leavenworth, but uh, authors have very little patience for such things. Uh, it is much more interesting to talk about a tank battle than what it takes for both sides to actually get those forces there and sustain them in that battle. Uh, yeah, it's authors just aren't interested, or if they are interested, they quickly become uninterested because it's in many ways, it's, it's a rather mundane subject. It's a mundane subject that is of like absolutely critical and fundamental importance, but Authors just don't, authors just don't cover it. Even even military authors, you know, shy away from it because they, uh, you know, there's the fear that uh, they're they're immediately going to be having, you know, their readers start to, you know, start to kind of nod off if you know if they get in get into this too uh, too thoroughly. Uh, so the better authors work to try and find a mix, but but. Frankly, most just blow through it. The armies just magically appear where they're supposed to be, and then they duke it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I have the problem. If I mention logistics in the title, I, I lose definitely 50% of the views. <laughs> yep. It's like, okay, how, how, can I, how can I reframe this, this title to not put logistics in there? <laughs> oh, I know. It's a, and, you know, you'll be, you'll be running into that forever. Uh, but it's basic to understand how a lot of these wars are fought and why they're fought the way that they are. Even though it's often not covered in great detail, one thing that many students of uh, World War II know uh, about is the, is, the, is the fundamental decisions made at the beginning that the not going after the Nazis first. Even with the enormous resources of the United States in, uh, supporting Britain and the Soviet Union, there's only so much ultimately that is available and or can be made available uh, within the time constraints that people are working with. And of course, the longer a war goes on, uh, the more deaths that they are, uh, that, that all the sides are uh, experiencing. And of course, the people, they all want to uh, emerge victorious and they're all losing people. They're all losing resources, uh, you know, just on a daily, an hourly basis. And of course, in the case of uh, many of the people who are interested in history, they're very Eurocentric to begin with. When you, when you mention to them that like after the war, the United Nations uh, estimated that approximately 400,000 Asians were dying per month every year that the, that the war continued, 
400,000 a month is an enormous figure. Uh, you had uh, just, well, it depends on how you crunch the numbers, but you had just over 100,000 uh, Japanese that were killed in the Tokyo fire bombings, 1945. You had uh, just over 100,000 uh, uh, Milanos, uh, citizens of Manila, who were killed during the uh, the fighting for that city, uh, with about half of them in just about the last week or two of the fighting. So now there's 200,000 people. Uh, you have uh, uh, Okinawa, where again, depending on how you crunch the numbers, uh, the the civilian losses were uh, anywhere from. Uh, in the mid-40s to upwards to 100,000. Unfortunately, there's an overlap there. The the numbers get hard to quantify because of the 130,000 uniformed military, uh, slightly over half of them were Okinawans that had been conscripted. So the numbers on Okinawa becomes how do you want to quanti- how do you want to like construct those figures? But there you have three instances alone. You have Tokyo, Manila, and Okinawa, and you're talking and you're already uh, uh, exceeding a quarter million deaths. Now, again, we're not just talking casualties, we're talking deaths. So uh, th- these, these numbers surprise uh, many people who are interested in uh, the World War II because a lot, a lot of people's focus has been on Europe. But the, the death tolls in, uh, in uh, Asia were uh, absolutely... Uh, astounding. The uh, China, from the Marco Polo Bridge incident to uh, the uh, to the end of '45, again, it depends on how you crunch the numbers. But it was certainly no fewer than 10 million deaths in China, and China itself uh, uh, claims upwards to 25 million deaths. Uh, to Europeans, this is all new stuff. But again, the UN did a very exhaustive uh, bit of work after the war, and they were coming up with 400,000-some uh, deaths per month. Every month that war went on. Amazing stuff. It's actually, and almost invisible. It's actually quite interesting because the majority of my viewers are Americans. and. Mm-hmm. And when I do something um, about America, usually like the First World War, like the American Expeditionary Forces, they know that um, we actually want to hear more about Europe because the United Mm -hmm. States is covered all the time. And my Pacific videos always uh, always get less views, which of course might be due to my accent because um, my accent speaking about the Eastern Front and Germany makes more sense. You have an accent? Yeah. I didn't pick up up on that. (laughs) Many many people say I have an extreme accent. <laughs> so and it, it makes more sense because if I speak with my accent about the Pacific, it makes less. I guess. Oh, oh. Le- well, that's interesting. Less sense. That's interesting. They they hear someone uh, with a say a Teutonic accent, and they immediately discard. What's this guy speaking about uh, Asia for? Well, you need you're going to have to find. Uh, uh, you're going to have to find someone out there who can do uh, your uh, your Pacific uh, your Pacific videos. <laughs> I mean, I think it's less about discarding. It's it's more like it feels more 
let's see, um, appropriate. Less authentic. Yeah, less, less authentic. authentic and more authentic with the German stuff, of course. Mm -hmm. No, he's he's a German. He he can he can tell me something about the Wehrmacht. I mean, I'm yeah. Austrian. You may, but... be, you may be saying absolute nonsense, but you're saying it with a German accent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it sounds way more interesting. Like like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think he does the joke all the time. You you love my accent, so I'm gonna read out now this poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Americans. Uh... Yeah, it uh, it's it shouldn't be surprising that they're that that uh, Americans tend to be Eurocentric. But you know, you uh, you as a professional, you know, you deal with you deal with it, you know, as best as best you can. And uh, there's still so many things having to do with uh, with the European war uh, that uh, have had really have been understudied for one reason or another. And of course, uh, uh, you can always bring people in with uh, a nice thing on, on, on tank warfare and so forth. But, uh, you know, I, I understand from your situation, you just have to deal with it. And, and frankly, from the little bits I've seen looking at your videos, you've really done a very nice job, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. you know, with, with the, with the limited resources you've got, uh, and in, in terms of my own, uh, say, hell to pay, I just try and play it as uh, straight as I can in terms of the decision making. Uh, one thing that a lot of Americans know, but they don't really know the details on is uh, they, uh, they, they understand it, that, but they don't really, they don't really know uh, – the, the, they don't really know the grim situation that the senior leadership within America had to deal with at that time, looking at the, you know, the very real limitations in manpower that they had. Uh, you know, it was not a thing that we're having to uh, do as much scraping of the bottom of the barrel as, as it was often described as, uh, as is sometimes perceived. But, but still, manpower was was a big problem for the United States because so much of it was tied up in the industrial side, which uh, which not only we were depending on, but the Allies were depending on as well. Now, in terms of our own casualties and so forth, uh, which was all going to subtract from you know the manpower available for both uh, prosecution of the war. Uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, at home and uh, from the industrial and agriculture, uh, you know, production to overseas and also uh, the military at home, you know, to, uh, you know, support the training base and so on and so forth. The United States entering into the war late actually ended up having a uh, a very considerable amount of benefit on being able to prosecute it in the way that we did. Uh, first, mostly supporting the Allies and then having our own troops, laboriously getting them overseas to where they could actually engage in the fighting. Uh, now, after the war, the, that 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 laborious effort, which you know we started as quickly as we can, but it. It, just, it takes it takes a while. You raise the the units, you train the units, you get you get them to where they need to be, uh, 
and there was there was a there was a steady increase in the number of uh, units fighting in the Pacific and fighting uh, against the the Nazis, you know, North Africa, Italy, and so forth, Sicily. But there, the the big buildup were where England itself became this massive launching pad for uh, a great number of divisions going across the channel that took a that took a while but once the uh, invasion of continental europe started and by the way that coincided um, normandy coincided with interestingly enough the major push in the Pacific, the in, the invasion of uh, the Mariana Islands, Guam, Tinian, uh, Saipan, both of these major surges in U.S. forces into combat, both occurred starting in June of uh, 1944, and the Army after the war referred to that as the beginning of the casualty surge. And during the casualty surge, the army itself, you know, just excluding the Navy, uh, excluding the Marine Corps uh, and so forth, the army itself ended up having uh, an average of about 65,000 casualties every month. Now, for the United States, that's an enormous number. Uh, Now, the heaviest months ended up being... um, Oh, they ended up being, let's see, November, December, and January uh, from uh, from the from the winter forty four through forty five, where the United States had seventy two thousand. As the United States Army, again, this did not include the Marines and the Navy. The Navy had some major actions during this period, uh, and the Marines some extremely uh, uh, bloody fighting on Peleliu and so forth. But the army itself, just the army, had on those months 72,000 casualties, 88,000 casualties, and 79,000 casualties. For Americans, these are enormous numbers. It's like uh, it's like multiple Vietnam, uh, multiple 10-year spans of Vietnam, all all like folded into a few months. You know that kind of thing, and people knew about this at the time to to a degree because there was there was actually a considerable amount of coverage of losses in the american press so uh this this whole uh, this whole thing was uh, a very uh in many ways support keeping the war effort supported and the uh, and americans motivated well, it was in many ways a very dicey proposition, and it was what a lot of uh, it was what m- most of the much of the government's uh, decision making at that time was structured around, just kind of keeping that war effort going. Now, in terms of the Japanese, they were very well aware of this, uh, you know, through neutral nations uh, and um, and their own collection efforts, they could read about uh, they could read about all of this. Even with the strict U.S. wartime censorship, there was still a lot that was going in the press, and the, they could—they were able to like read so much of what was going on. The multiple congressional investigating committees, for example, on manpower questions, uh, 
the uh, announcements that, uh, oh, in 1945, that we were over a period of a few months, essentially working to double draft calls to prepare for the invasion of Japan. The Japanese saw this and they saw the pushback that was coming in Congress and so forth, and they made a completely rational decision on their part, which is that, hey, what we need to do is stretch the war out. Because if we stretch it out, it's going to be, we can take the pain. But can the United States uh, populace take the pain? And they made a very conscious decision to stretch the war out. Again, they're reading American newspapers. They're getting them through uh, neutral sources. Uh, heck, you could even buy subscriptions to uh, to Yank and Air Force magazine, which were printing casualty the casualty figures in them. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the Japanese ultimately ended up playing things as well as they could for what they had uh, av- available to them. And, uh, and ultimately, it took the shock of the atomic bomb, couple, or the atomic bombs, coupled with the, uh, the entrance of the Soviet Union into the war, for them to, to ultimately back out of the war. And then they even then... Uh, there was a lot of pushback to the emperor on doing it. Yeah. But, uh, things things worked out, but the but the American population uh, was uh, very specifically a a target uh, in that uh, in that respect. And the target being stretch out the war, pump up the casualties, and the Americans won't won't stick to it. Yeah, I found it very interesting when I read that basically. Um, no Japanese unit ever surrendered during the whole Pacific War. There were always individuals, but never a complete unit surrendered, and the American leadership was aware of this. And and when I read about that the Japanese got mainly their intelligence from the newspapers and everything, it kind of reminded me a bit about those, those theories or that some people claim that the United States lost the war in Vietnam due to the media. And then it, it was like very interesting. I heard this before, and then I read in your book, Now, the Japanese always got this information from the media as well and something. It was quite interesting that this back then already happened to a certain degree, that the enemy got this information there, or that the public opinion is, of course, so much affected. Well, the the interesting thing is, is that uh, in many ways, the situation in the United States with the population was nowhere near as dire as the Japanese thought it was. It's it's very interesting the way this was playing out because so in a way it's it's, it's similar to the silent majority that Nixon stated. Well, actually, it wasn't so silent in, in many respects because, uh, for example, uh, there were there was a very very solid majority. Oh, let's just take the emperor. Uh, of Japan, there was a very, very solid uh, majority that wanted uh, to see the emperor, uh, in effect, tried and hung. Uh, and uh, the United States uh, senior leadership had to work that issue very, very carefully because there's a lot of factors involved. But basically, we needed the Japanese military was so diffuse and so spread out and uh, and and commands were almost independent 
and in some cases were functionally independent in their operation from Tokyo, uh, we needed to have a central authority that all Japanese revered and would and would obey to basically say, lay down your arms, because otherwise, as and General Marshall was very clear about this, otherwise we'd be uh, fighting significant actions in various places of like Asia for like perhaps the next five years, because uh, they had they had massive forces still in China, Southeast Asia, uh, the the Soviets, uh, you know, they their piece of the of the core Japanese Empire uh, in these final assaults was going to be Manchuria uh, and uh, and Sakhalin, and uh, but the build up to that was, you know, took took a lot, and they and they were going to be having to go into if they were going to do anything more, there was going to be a really big lull after Manchuria and Sakhalin. And, uh, and so they weren't going to be able to like do that much for a while. They kind of shot their bolt, uh, so to speak, and they were going to have a lot, a very, very considerable amount of uh, work to do solidifying their gains in Manchuria because they were spread out all over the place and literally had run out of gas. So there was sometimes, sometimes you can take a territory and getting in there is not the problem. Uh, it's maintaining it after you get it. And the uh, the uh, the Soviets were going to have a really big job. They were going to be very busy in Manchuria if the Japanese did not surrender. Luckily, between their invasion and the bombs, uh, the Japanese did it. That that whole that whole series of events right there in August did push them to a surrender. But the, the senior military did not want to do it. Uh, it was a, it was a very close run thing as far as the editor. I'm sorry, the editor, the uh, the emperor and uh, the emperor's family. He even had to send out senior members of his family to like far off commands to 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 give his, to give his personal instructions uh, from a member of the royal family, saying, "No, this was not the emperor who is uh, who is being forced to say this. This is the emperor's decision, and I am communicating this to you personally. You are to lay down your arms." And that, now this is getting back to your comment a moment ago, once it was understood that this was the emperor's decision, then you started getting units surrendering. Uh, gosh, by the, uh, by the latter part of uh, August, the uh, Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet forces benefited immensely from the fact that Many, not all, but many Japanese units were agreeing, in effect, to surrender. Uh, the Soviets ended up harvesting, oh, I, what was it, something like about um, a million and a half, I think it was, about a million and a half prisoners uh, elsewhere in the Japanese empire. Uh, they, 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 were, they avoided surrendering to the Chinese, uh, but, but we were able to, like, uh, get a very large number of Japanese units to surrender to us uh, in uh, places in in uh, eastern China, where we had uh, Marines land and so forth, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, many, and then, uh, then there was the massive job of like getting all these guys demobilized and shipped back to Japan. But yes, there was uh, literally in Japan itself, 
and elsewhere across their empire wants the emperor's heartfelt direction in an imperial rescript. Actually, there were two imperial rescripts uh, said, lay down your arms. And uh, this uh, then you had units surrendering. Prior to the emperor making that directive, no, didn't happen. Didn't happen. It just, uh, uh, they, they would die first uh, and encourage whatever Japanese civilians were, were in their control to also uh, kill themselves. There's, uh, there's, uh, rec there's records of, uh, of mass uh, suicides on uh, Tinian and, uh, and Guam. Or is it Saipan? I think it's Tinian and Guam specifically. And um, there was a certain amount of that in Okinawa. But by the time the Okinawa fighting occurred, the U.S. military had gotten very adept, at, or at least reasonably adept, at communicating to the civilians that, no, we are not going to be, you know, killing you. Uh, you know, the J Japanese, very intensive Japanese language uh, training, uh, Nisei, which is Japanese Americans, uh, you know, in, in uniform, uh, you know, soldiers who uh, would also communicate this, you know, in their own uh, language. Uh, we would drop uh, massive numbers of leaflets saying, wear white and stick to the coasts so that we see you and you, we know and we can recognize who you are. And that's, that's say, that minimized a lot of Japanese uh, civilians on Okinawa, and there were still an enormous numbers of, uh, of casualties. But, you know, wear white, head to the coast. There was this one peninsula that was not uh, going to be uh, in the path of our assault uh, that was off to kind of the uh, the uh, eastern uh, flank of the of the Shuri line defenses, and we said go there, you know, and uh, because because we're not going there, you know, we're in effect going to bypass you, uh, but uh, but where Japanese civilians were uh, co-located in caves with Japanese military. Basically, in in many in actually most cases like that, everyone died yeah. because the Japanese military in those same locations that were co-located with civilians. Uh, think of the think of a mentality, say like ISIS during the beheadings that were going on in the Middle East and so forth. Uh, it was uh, very much a situation where they the Japanese military would fight to the death. Uh, they would eventually uh, holdouts would eventually uh, commit Harry Carey, and they would also be uh, either directly killing or encouraging the uh, the um, suicide of the Japanese civilians with them. But it's like I said, luckily it was much worse, I mean, rather much less worse uh, in Okinawa than. Uh, than it had been in the Mariana Islands, which were also operated as a as a colony of the Japanese. Okinawa, by the way, was a prefecture. R really, you could say that the invasions of uh, of Sakhalin by the Soviets and Okinawa by us, uh, from the Japanese standpoint, you're 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 um, you're now 
fighting in Japan. Those are prefectures of Japan. Um, yeah, every combat division going into Okinawa had uh, uh, 2,000 2, meals immediately available for civilian consumption. There was uh, multiple thousand, mostly U.S. Navy personnel, uh, who were going to be who were setting up uh, specifically uh, several large hospitals for for Okinawan civilian use and uh, field stations. Many, most of the Okinawans seemed to be at the time utterly shocked that they were not being killed. They they were at, they were they were stunned, and as soon as uh, it was, there was it was quite a turnaround of uh, attitude when they saw that they were not being killed. Their food that they had s stored away and hidden away was not being taken from them. Uh, uh, ver various uh, resources were being made available to them so that they could get their crops into the fields and like ba basic shelter uh, constructed. And the Okinawans were very industrious. I mean, they were just getting right to work to try and get their situations you know, back in order. The question from the standpoint of the U.S. military is, could this be done in Japan? Because Okinawans, in a way, uh, one thing that, that was at least a slight advantage in Okinawa was that they had always kind of been treated like second-class citizens. So there may have been a, a little bit more skepticism of directives from the military and so forth than uh, one could count on in, in Japan. Uh, the, the civilians in Okinawa cooperated to their benefit you know, uh, very early, but it was not believed that that was going to happen in Japan. And from all the indications afterwards, it was it was going to be a mess. Civilian civilian deaths there were just going to be at a level that that people today have their uh, have trouble getting their minds around. Our estimates in the Department of Defense was that that uh, building on experiences and uh, and percentages used on fighting. Uh, the uh, the Nazis and it's and that's a, its effect on the uh, German civilian population. Extrapolating that out to how the Japanese defenses were conducted in the territory that we had already fought in, uh, there were estimates in the uh, Department of Defense of five to ten million. Japanese that we would have to, and this is this is a quote that we would have to kill five to ten million Japanese before we subdued the country, uh, and that, that's by the way part of the uh, Shockley report. Shockley, who later uh, won uh, a uh, Nobel for his, uh, uh, he and several others on their work on the transistor. I have but a question that, here because. For, for the invasion of Kyushu, the southernmost island of Japan, Operation Olympic, the, f the first estimates and everything were overly optimistic. Why was this the case? Because I, I couldn't find this. I, I read several times it's very optimistic in the beginning. But what was the reason for this? Because there was already substantial experience that this will be probably pretty hard. Well, it's easy, it's, it's easy for almost any military to do this. We'd, we had had, although the, the cost was increasing 
as it, as we went and increasing radically, still we had a long string of victories, and the victories uh, part of part of the reason why even though our casualties had been high and growing, they had still been within ranges which were manageable in terms of casualty replacement and replacement of, you know, like hardware and so forth. The only thing is, though, is that it, it can tend to give one a false or it can tend to give elements within the planning uh, staffs uh, an element of complacency because you, you got to remember earlier in the Pacific War, you had a situation where you could uh, – and by the way, this was something that was just driving the Japanese military absolutely batty, as we were able to like take advantage of our massive naval superiority, and we were able to an air superiority, and we were able to like bypass. Or just because they have an island, we don't have to take the whole island. We just take a uh, a portion of the island. Uh, that is uh, militarily necessary for our next leapfrog, so to speak, over and beyond some of their other positions. And if uh, if then, uh, you know, we have bypassed it and we've not taken, for example, the entire island. We did, we did things like this in New Guinea. We did it in uh, Bougainville. We were going to do it uh, in Kyushu. We completely by bypassed a number of major uh, facilities and then effectively just used them for target practice and training for the rest of the war. But the, th the thing is, is we had a lot of ability to do that. We could uh, uh, we could just simply go around them or go over them. But as you got and we got used to that and we got used to the ability to do that and some of the and more planning uh, evolved around being able to do that in the home islands than was really warranted. Uh, for example, it was thought originally, for example, on Kyushu, that we would have our five landings. I don't know. If actually, not there was there was there was five base five potential invasion areas in the southern portion of the uh, of the of the island. The one of them ended up getting eliminated for a variety of reasons, and then it was four. And we were going to be attacking three of them with an entire core each at each of them, all at the same time. And then another. And then the fourth one. Uh, was uh, which is a very interesting story on that was going to be assaulted several days later and for very specific reasons it was offset um, but the idea was is that we were in effect going to overwhelm the Japanese forces in Kyushu the only problem is is that the United States uh, had a very we had developed a very effective way of conducting amphibious invasions. The only problem was, is it was very formalistic. And it was always, for example, within the range of uh, shore-based air support. Now we had, we had obviously a large number, a huge number of aircraft by the end of the war, you know, associated with aircraft carriers and so forth. But uh, they are good for an initial pound 
uh, pounding of an area. They're uh, they're excellent for ma- maintaining uh, and defending uh, s- supply lines and so forth, uh, and and making well placed assaults either against naval forces or even ground forces. But the, the problem with carrier forces is they, they could not sustain the ongoing day-in, day-out air support. So our very formulistic invasion uh, operations were conducted in such a way that everything w- was done within the umbrella of the earlier operation. Now, of course, the Japanese, not being stupid, very early on recognized this. And so when we were, uh, after we had seized Okinawa, it was very obvious that like, okay, they can strike directly at Tokyo, but we don't, and in fact, there were proposals to do that. But the Japanese figured out the same thing that our own staffs had figured out, which is be that that was a high risk thing to do and we we and there was uh, there was going to be potentially great problems sustaining an operation out of range of uh, of of shore shore based air cover. So we decided no direct thrust towards Tokyo. The Japanese figured that you know correctly that we're not going to probably be able to do that. They're still going to have to have major forces up there just in case. But that probably wasn't going to happen. And they had figured out quite correctly that we were going to be going into Kyushu. Then, once having figured out that they that we were going to be going into Kyushu, it's like, well, where are we likely to go? Well, it's probably not going to be the northern half of the island for a variety of reasons I won't get into uh, here. We're probably going to be going going in in the south. And if they go in in the south... Where are they going to go? Well, okay, they know what our requirements are. We know what our requirements are. And so we're planning our, our initial surge of three cores on these three, you know, areas. And they look, they're looking at the same territory that we're looking at, and they say, oh, uh, their requirements are going to mandate that they go into these three areas. Now, they didn't think that we were going to go into them all at the same time, mind you, but they did figure out which ones they were, and they were all very, very, they they had figured this out actually pretty early on, and they were all more than, we'll just put it this way, they were all more than adequately defended. The one area that had the, the, the fewest fixed defenses was the one uh, in the west that the Marines were going into, and uh, and the reason why the uh, the uh, defenses were allowed to, you know, you know they had to allot their resources as best they could, and they figured that area could wait as far as uh, allotting more defensive works going there, and the reason why they decided that the area in the west could be the one that received. Uh, you know, fewer resources was because its defensive, potentially defensive, uh, its ter- its terrain was so well suited to the defense. I mean, the terrain was nasty enough in the two sites in the in the east as it was, but in the west, 
it was just unimaginably bad for an invading force. Yes, the beaches were great. Once you get past the, the beaches and are moving up to, say, take Sendai and are moving to fight your way towards the bay, you know, uh, the, 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 the bay that, uh, that's, uh, you know, flanked by two peninsulas in southern Kyushu, then it's going to get real bad. It's going to get real bad. Um, and they, the, the natural defenses are, are such that they just didn't need that much. And uh, but the bottom line to your question is, is the Japanese had figured us out and uh, by figuring us out, they were able to dump a massive amount of, uh, of uh, both manpower and material into those areas. And they were they were ready to go. Uh, it was it was basically uh, it had basically gotten to a point where you're looking at uh, uh one-to-one -one in terms of, divi of divisions. And as uh, MacArthur's uh, intelligence chief uh, reported, I think it was on the 20th of July, this is not a recipe for victory, where you're attacking one-to-one, -one, even with our, fire, our massive firepower. After the war, a Marine study looking at that same uh, area in the West said that the looked at the initial divisions that were coming in and of course there was going to be more forces coming in behind them but they looked at those initial divisions and they said that the third marine amphibious course uh, uh rather the third marine amphibious corps would likely expend itself fighting its way to the inner bay and up towards sendai now that's a very interesting phraseology expend itself yeah once we got once we got boots on the ground as the saying goes and we were able to actually look at what the japanese had prepared it was it was absolutely stunning uh it was uh we were looking at excluding things like say atomic bombs and uh oh and just uh you know naval bombardments and so forth uh our own logistic studies, you know, conducted by you know the engineers uh, in conjunction with you know other uh, army organizations, we're looking at something like a million and a half Japanese casualties in uh, in Kyushu. I mean, at, you know, fig figures again that today, and this is just over a couple month period. Uh, figures figures like this today, people, they are so large, people, you, it's like I said, you, can't, you just can't wrap your head around them sometimes. We, that one report that uh, was estimating that we would have to kill five to ten million Japanese, the Japanese had, a, had their own uh, figure that was being circulated in imperial circles. Uh, and it was, it came up from multiple sources from senior officers and senior administrators after the war. Uh, in interrogations and also in the Tokyo war crimes trials, they were looking at 20 million Japanese casualties. That was the figure being used in imperial circles was 20 million. We're talking 5 to 10 million. They're talking 20 million or basic, basically a quarter the number of the Japanese actually on the home islands. The, the Japanese empire was, was at, uh, in terms of Japanese uh, uh, nationals was about a hundred million at the time but a lot of those were in china 
and and elsewhere, Southeast Asia, especially China, Southeast Asia, uh, they were up north. Uh, they were in outer areas such as Okinawa, uh, Sakhalin, and so forth. But in terms of the of the of the core home islands, it was like 80 plus million, 85 million, and they were apparently looking at uh, a qu- about a quarter of them being casualties. Some sources refer to them as dead. A uh, quarter million, you know, dead. Twenty million dead. I think whoever said that was just probably just doing a shorthand. I, uh, of sorts. Sometimes in these in these reports and interrogations, people switch back and forth between talking casualties and deaths. But no matter what way you cut it, twenty million is a fantastic number. And in in their Bushido culture. This was thought of as being completely reasonable in terms of victory because there would still be so many Japanese available there to carry on. Three quarters of us will still be alive and still be and be able to rebuild. I mean, that's the way they looked at it. But the, the, the fatalism of all this and the enormous casualties that were uh, up that were not just being, as the UN studies showed, ongoing even without an invasion, but even after the invasion, uh, are again are just uh, incredible. And you got to remember, the war is also still going on in China, and now the Soviets are having to also solidify what they have taken in uh, in uh, Manchuria, and and the Soviet forces in Manchuria are uh, a lot like uh, a lot like the U.S. forces that were driving into. Uh, Western Germany towards Berlin, they, they they were not they were not these massive phalanxes of troops. They were they were lots of fingers that can be surrounded and cut off, and uh, the uh, Japanese uh, army, it's not commonly realized, uh, you know today, had uh, developed a redoubt strategy to bleed the Russians, to bleed the Americans. If the Japanese, for example, in Kyushu, in, into the sea, if the, Amer- if the Japanese could not drive the Americans, as they put it, back into the sea during the initial invasion operations, there was, they were going to have a fairly quick fighting withdrawal up to the Mount Aso area in the northern third of Kyushu, or that there's basically this massive Redoubt is going to have about uh, 15 some divisions in it, highly mountainous territory, and uh, the idea being to try and protect the very populous northern hunk of the island, which was really where the island's main industrial base was. In fact, they were even at uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this <clears throat> Hita. They had built a huge underground <clears throat> armaments complex that was part of the redoubt. Uh, in case the cities were uh, were thoroughly bombed out, they would be able to continue with armaments production and so forth at uh, at this one uh, massive complex that uh, they had started on actually back in something like February. And they had a redoubt <clears throat> most inconvenient for our plans on assaulting the Tokyo area. They had a redoubt. Uh, that they were uh, building in the same area that they later had, most recently had their Winter Olympics. 
Now, it's on the wrong side of the mountains for us, and there's no easy way to get at it. And they were, and they were. And that's where their headquarters, uh, the uh, the uh, Imperial Japanese Army's headquarters, was going to be going up there. Uh, it was going to be the center for uh, guerrilla warfare. Uh, the Imperial Regala and so forth was all going to be brought up there, essentially again to carry on the war, bleed Americans for an extended period of time. Now, in terms of the Russians. They, as early as uh, again, it was right in through the same t- the same time frame. Uh, it's, uh, really the, the the time frame of about the winter of 1944-45. They had already been siphoning siphoning off their best divisions, their best formations from Manchuria, and it was clear. For, for defense elsewhere within the Japanese empire that were actually being attacked. And it was uh, pretty much already in the planning stage to take out the rest of the best divisions and send them over to Japan and other threatened areas. What this essentially ended up meaning is, is that they were going to have to replace them with indigenously raised Units, which they can do, but these units obviously don't have the training and the experience of the ones that had been fighting uh, and had uh, built up a very extensive body of, you know, knowledge and, and working, you know, ex- uh, uh, combat experience over a period of uh, a decade or so. They would not be able to fulfill the previous offensive mission that the Japanese had for them in Manchuria. They could not even hold the outer uh, Manchuria's outer borders. So the strategy for Manchuria was that essentially, if the Soviets come into the war and uh, with the uh, even before the uh, abrogation of the of the uh, non-aggression pact or the uh, the uh, it was very well understood that the Soviets were probably going to be coming in. Because uh, Stalin's rhetoric had become much more bellicose, pretty much right at about the same time as the uh, the, uh, the Moscow negotiations. People talk about Yalta, they talk about uh, Potsdam, uh, they talk about you know these different conferences. Very important, and it involved the senior heads of states. But like some of them, but some of the most critical uh, meetings in terms of the Soviets. War with coming war with Japan were actually held in late 1944 in Moscow. That's another story, though. But in any event, uh, there was more bellicose rhetoric coming from uh, the uh, Soviets. The Japanese figured it's going to be just a matter of time. What they were going, what they decided to do, was essentially if the Russians invaded, our divisions are just going to be just gobbled up whole if we try and hold the outer areas of Manchuria. Can't we just? They, they're just not going to be capable of that. Our best divisions are going to Japan and Okinawa and Formosa and so forth. We we can't do it with the formations on hand. So, if the Russians invade, basically it's going to be a race. The Russians come. The Russians are going to be coming in, and we're going to be pulling back. There's going to be a certain amount of uh, of rear guard fighting that's going to be going on. But basically, we're going to let the Russians 
uh, stretch themselves out, and we're going to be retreating to <clears throat> the uh, China-Korea border area. And from that area, we will have a redoubt that we will carry on the war uh, uh, in, <clears throat> in Manchuria from, or on the mainland from there. And they, we will have our resources there. We will have our manpower there. It will not be easily. You can't really use armor there. It can, uh, the, the Russians will have to go in the hard way. Meanwhile, we will have this army essentially asa uh, sitting astride their lines of communications to one of the places that we figure is going to be ultimately their main target, which is down in Darien, you know, and, uh, and down in the peninsula there, the, you know, Port Arthur. <clears throat> we will have a massive army sitting on their flank. And, the, and a massive army that they can't really go after except for with infantry. And so as the Japanese had developed this strategy of redoubts in order to carry on the war uh, well into 46 and into 1947. And uh, that, that was their strategy, just be bleeding everybody, make them bleed and make them give up eventually. And... Uh, we're lucky. A lot of people alive today are lucky that this is uh, that this whole thing got preempted, because you know car the carnage just had to end, and there was very there's very there was there was expensive ways to end it, ex uh, that were going to take potentially years, and there was quick ways to do it. And the funny thing is, is, you, is at the time we didn't even know if the atomic bombs would do it. Yeah. There were certainly people in the uh, senior Japanese military who, even after two atomic bombs on the Soviet entry, you know, it was it was days later before the the emperor was able to like finally get them to surrender. And even then, it was you know he had to send out members of the imperial family to make sure that this just actually worked. So uh, yeah, the, the the end of World War II is very very fascinating, but most only really know about it of uh, Europe and the dropping of a couple bombs and the surrender on the Missouri. You know the the the, the extreme gyrations that were going on. Uh, the to the uh, the uh, the Japanese senior military going to Manila to uh, get their uh, surrender. You know uh, instructions. Uh, that that whole that whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's just it just pretty much escaped the history books. Certainly. The massive lend-lease aid to Russia to enable them to fight an offensive war as opposed to a defensive war uh, in uh, the Far East that was invisible for years and years. And yeah, by the time, uh, by the time data started coming uh, available on that, pretty much the narrative was already set. Uh, there was there was a little bit that started to come out after uh, after the war, but then between the Russians' uh, forever desire to portray their forces as invincible and able to do whatever it wanted to do on its own and without help from anybody, and our own uh, political problems back in the United States where we had a developing Cold War, basically w within, uh, within a very short time after some of that data started getting released, 
it just it wasn't so much that it was officially withheld as much as that you just knew to be not talking about it. Uh, some of the some of the uh, some of this ended up getting released oddly enough in the mid 1950s because uh, the best I can figure out because there's I've not seen an actual rationale for this but the army came out with about 105 or 120 page white paper explaining the or, the cooperation the uh, and the uh, or the, yeah, the the origins of the cooperation. And uh, a little bit of the and the reasoning behind it, and uh, a little bit on the details. And then the details started. Uh, a little bit of that had been released in '46, and then '66 uh, was when s somewhat more uh, started being published. But it's like I said, by that time, the narrative's already set. But we couldn't do it. Ne ne both ourselves and the Soviets were very much in agreement that unlike the aid in fighting the Nazis, which was a very, very public affair, you know, you have, uh, you know, tra trains festooned with Russian and American flags uh, rolling up through Iran to the Caucasus, uh, Convoys fighting their way, uh, you know, through the Arctic seas, you know, to to Murmansk and Archangel, that kind of thing. The aid uh, to the Soviets fighting the Nazis was a very public affair, uh, and it had to be a very public affair for our uh, for German uh, for the Germans to see for uh, for Soviet morale. And the Soviets did publicize that. They did publicize our aid in, in fighting the Nazis. Uh, British morale, our own, our our own, uh, our own self worth, because there was a lot of people who were critical in the United States that our allies were doing as much fighting as they were, as early as they were, and you know, and our and our invasion of Europe had not started yet. But the thing is, is you have to you have to make this build up for the massive lunge. Otherwise, you're putting forces in piecemeal, and you have essentially you you increase the likelihood of a World War One type scenario of stalemates. So when we so we had to have this overwhelming force, or at least potentially overwhelming force, that we could thrust across the channel. But what that meant is is that in the meantime. You know, we're fighting in peripheral areas and we have to be shown that we're supporting our allies to the maximum. So Lend-Lease fighting the Nazis was something that was always in the forefront. On the buildup for fighting the, uh, the Japanese, it had to be. It was an absolutely critical necessity that it had to be kept secret because of the extreme vulnerabilities of uh, these of the Soviet and American supply lines to the Far East. See the you just it just it just it w there was one point where there were some hints of this that uh, came up in I think a Chicago newspaper in late 1944, and Stalin went ballistic uh, over that. He read the Riot Act 
to Ambassador Harriman and the head of the military mission, Dean, that somebody was leaking. And this cannot be because, you know, the ability of the Japanese, if they got wind of this, to like throw a monkey wrench into, into the Soviet buildup was so easy because you have uh, this for something like about 1,200 miles, you know, kind of following the curve of Manchuria and then, uh, you know, uh, running along the north and then kind of taking this dogleg down towards Vladivostok for more than a thousand miles. Uh, uh, I don't know how many kilometers this is. You have the Trans-Siberian Railroad that is essentially skirting Japanese territory. Most of that distance, it's about 30, 35 miles away from Japanese territory. In a number of places, and for elongated stretches, it's like as little as 15 miles. You've got bridges, you've got tunnels. The vulnerability of the Trans-Siberian Railroad and, uh, and problems with the supplying Russian forces in that area had been part of the reason why the Russians lost during, you know, the, uh, during their you know, earlier war with Japan. And they were real sensitive to this because that, that's, that, that little sliver of a supply line was so vulnerable. Likewise, their situation in Vladivostok, as far as shipping was concerned, <clears throat> was just as bad as the American situation had been in the Philippines at the beginning of the war, which is that all of the routes, the sea routes, had to pass through Japanese territory, you know, say through straits, you know, between... Uh, Hokkaido and Sakhalin and Hokkaido and the Kuril Islands. Uh, that's that's for the that's for getting you know shipping to Vladivostok. It could be snipped shut in a heartbeat. But the Soviets needed a buildup. They need you know they they didn't want to just be fighting uh, until they ran out of uh, you know. Bullets, uh, you know, uh, borscht and manpower. They, you know, needed, you know, they needed to get a buildup there, and that buildup wasn't going to happen if the if the Japanese got an inkling that they were going to be coming in, and so there was there was a there the uh, the ja and the Soviets, Stalin had made uh, what as early as Crimea, he'd made his initial uh, you know uh, pledge to come into the war with Japan. And then in the Moscow negotiations in, uh, what, October, started in October of 1944, a lot of this started getting solidified as far as the, of, as far as the specifics of what they wanted. And it's outlined in, in hell to pay what he wanted. And that was just the down payment, so, so to speak. And then, uh, and then we show additions that were made to it. You know, 45,000 trucks, including duck amphibious trucks, uh, vast amounts of railroad supplies and railroad equipments, uh, engines, uh, rail, rail cars, uh, petroleum products. Uh, I, it, it was just absolutely staggering. Uh, I think it ended up being um, 
what was it? Was it? I think that the number that's sticking in my mind was 171 major shipments. Oh, we were reflagging Liberty ships, putting to the Russians, uh, so so that it was all going through the Japanese Straits uh, under a right. It was our ships with Russian flags. Uh, oh, Project Hook. This, by the way, was essentially the secret fourth protocol of land lease. There, there had been a fourth protocol, uh, and then when, once the uh, Moscow negotiations, once we, once Stalin got specific as to what he wanted in late 1944, essentially the fourth pro- protocol was thrown out and co- utterly revised, and essentially the fourth protocol became what was called. Uh, the code name for that was Milepost, which was supplying for the Russian buildup of the invasion of Japan, which, interestingly enough, started uh, through the Crimea before uh, uh, before the end of 1944. Started some initial shipments just to show our our good faith and that we were getting off the sh- off the stick. Uh, they increased before Yalta, and Yalta kind of finalized a lot of this. Uh, and then, uh, gosh, April and May, April, May, and June were big months. By by May, it was uh, they were also turning their forces around, uh, you know, from uh, from uh, Europe, and they were starting to like get them out uh, across the uh, Trans Siberian. By that time, the Japanese saw a lot of it too, but that's another story. But uh, but yeah, this keeping keeping that. A secret and not provoking the Japanese was a big deal. So that whole that whole s- s- massive supply pipeline. Oh yes, and a sideline to this was Project Hula was also part of Milepost, and uh, Hula, which was actually negotiated separately, um, and this did specifically come from Yalta. Uh, Hula was uh, the establishing of a secret base in uh, Alaska to train Soviet personnel for uh, amphibious and escort uh, shipping, you know, uh, frigates, LCIs, minesweepers, sub-chasers. We were going to be supplying them, and of course this was all ongoing, but uh, we were, I think, I think at the time that the war ended, the the it called for I think 163 vessels altogether, and we had already turned over something like perhaps 90 of them. The numbers, but uh, uh, it was amphibious uh, shipping, like the whole uh, the the frigates for convoy escorts and so on and so forth. Um, the, yeah, and we trained 5,000 Soviet sailors. On the operating on the operation of these American vessels, and uh, and uh, they're all reflagged combat vessels, and this is on top of the uh, Liberty ships that we had reflagged. Uh, yeah, it was it was a huge effort, but uh, and after the war, it was beginning to become known. General Dean himself, uh, you know, wrote wrote a book about it. And uh, that was cleared in '46 and released in early 1947. But then, as the winds changed, uh, we, it just became something that 
was not talked about. And when you talked about Pacific resupply, it was always implied when you looked at the numbers that it was that it was just part of the general war effort when, in fact, something like about half of it was specifically related to the invasion of Manchuria. See, the thing is, as Japanese, even with their, uh, even with their newly raised divisions in Manchuria, it was quite rightly believed, and the Japanese had plans for, uh, if, if the Soviets were not invading and we invaded, that they would be ferrying those troops over as well. And even though they're only half trained, they're still trained and they're still armed. And so you're talking about, what, another an extra 20 divisions facing the Americans. Uh, so the idea, the way it was divvied up, is the Soviets are taking the, the continental side of Imperial Japan. You know, they're, they're, they're getting, they're taking Manchuria and taking that off the table. And we are going into the home islands themselves. The way Stalin uh, put it, uh, was that uh, they would break the back of Japan. There's different translations for this. Break Japan's spine, break the back of Japan. They, they would break Japan's back, and we would, uh, and while we would attack, the, you know, the, 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 the head, we would attack the head, and they would break the spine. And that was that was the way it was it was talked about at that level. And again, there's different translations of this, but it's break break the back of Japan, break Japan's spine. That was that was what the Soviets. That's how were the Soviets or Stalin specifically. That was his phraseology, uh, specific phraseology, starting in October of '44. But this is new to most people. We simplify it as much as we can, and even in the simplified version of what we were giving the Russians and how that changed over time. And again, this is all the Pacific. We're not talking about fighting the Nazis. This is just all support for the invasion of Manchuria. Uh, again, 43,000 trucks. The, the Russians cannot, they could not, ain't going to happen. They cannot launch an offensive operation, for example, anywhere near the scale of what they did, where you're talking multi, multiple fronts simultaneously, you can't do it unless you have the ability to get those spearheads supplied for the initial buildup and then the trucks themselves, even during the surge forward, 43,000 trucks. Just, I'm just picking that one thing, and then that doesn't count. You know, all of the engines. I'd have, I could, I could dig it out in there, but you could just as easily like look at it yourself. When you see the, the rail supplies, we were sending them to get that Trans-Siberian Railroad squared around, and the petroleum supplies, because these, all this stuff is like eating, 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 and eating. Oh, we're even supplying them uni, uniform material. <laughs> you know. <laughs> their uniforms it was it was uh it was amazing absolutely amazing and uh and uh, and this is not oriented towards the european theater uh, we were the, the materials that were going through uh vladivostok which started really as a trickle uh in 1942 and then uh increased somewhat through 
19 uh, through the first half of 44, uh, and until you know the, uh, the, uh, the various straits got closed off by ice, it was significant, but it was also very much geared and oriented towards supporting the Russian population and the European war. And overt military supplies through that route were, were kept very indiscreet. I uh, rather kept very discreet, uh, as, mu- uh, as much as possible, to not overly provoke Hitler, who would then be pressing the Japanese even more. Uh, so it, it was it was very carefully done. But like the spigots were turned after the Moscow nego- after the Moscow negotiations, and then uh, Yalta, uh, and again, you're, so we're talking really late 1944. Where they're still fighting a Soviet, uh, they're still fighting a, a Nazi enemy. But by that time, the material for fighting the Nazis was either material that was either already on order, or had already been delivered. When you're talking, you know, 1945, that all that all those 45 deliveries that doesn't have squat to do with fighting the Nazis. All of that 1945 material is the fourth protocol and milepost. And the, and the and the associated training, uh, say for Hula and so forth, and all, all these ships, staggering, absolutely staggering. And yeah, it's pretty much invisible. It's not that the information is not there. It's abs- it's it absolutely exists. But you know, it again in relation to the Soviets, it just became something that, as institutions, because we're talking the State Department and the Army. When the Cold War started and there was all of the criticisms uh, being levied uh, from uh, opponents of the uh, Truman administration who were also, you know, decrying uh, some of Roosevelt's negotiation agreements as well. There was there was a huge amount of uh, a huge firestorm of criticism having to do with Yalta and Potsdam. And uh, and you did have the the clear evidence of of Soviet duplicity, and uh, and they wanted their hooks in Germany, they wanted their hooks in Germany, and were doing everything they could to uh, to to slow up, or if they could, just completely halt, you know, uh, the recovery of Germany. And of course, there are many in the United States that didn't particularly want to see Germany recovering too quickly either. But but the long and the short of it was is the fact that we had aided them quite directly in uh, the in the Far East to the scope that we did, and that uh, at the same time where communist forces were on the verge and then actually did emerge victorious. Against nationalist forces in China, boy, this was this was an era, this was a area of uh, fraught with huge political danger, and nobody was going to talk about it. General Dean's book uh, w- was cleared, and uh, and then, uh, with the exception of people who were actually interested in things of that nature, essentially, other than for those folks, it essentially disappeared. You know, a lot of this really would have. If, if the Cold War had not developed, even though this was all highly secret, it would have, uh, and in fact was starting to come out on its own after the war. 
but uh, but again, with with the situation China and China developing as it was, we didn't want to. Uh, there were people in the administration and the senior military who really didn't want to advertise our role in supporting the communists in uh, Asia, and uh, the Russians for their own purposes of being, you know, portraying that we can do all of this on our own. And we did do it. You know, Soviet forces, you know, the, the, the again, the Soviet fighting man is, is 10 feet tall, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, they, uh, this, this great victory of Soviet arms. And it was a great victory of Soviet arms. It's just that, you know, three quarters of the Japanese and that force laid down their arms on the direction of, uh, of the emperor and they did not have to fight them literally to the death. Uh, you know, they were surrendering all across the empire and uh, a certain number of them did fight on and those ones that did fight on delayed the Soviets terribly. But if there had been no order from the, em from the emperor, even with all the American supplies, the 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 the, uh, the Soviets in Manchuria were going to be suffering terribly, and it was uh, they they were going to be they were going to be kind of hanging out there. They would they would not be able to do a lot of these spearheads because the ability to do them would not exist. I mean, the the functional ability in terms of supplies would exist, but when three quarters to four fifths of the force you're fighting is laying down its arms, that kind of presents opportunities to be thrusting, you know, elements forward that otherwise do not exist. They, the Soviets were expecting a much different outcome there than they suddenly had, than they were suddenly finding in front of them. And they were able to send out, you know, spearheads. And again, there's some similarities with that to what we were finding in, uh, you know, beyond the Rhine and into the core of Germany. Like, we didn't plan. We had never, beyond, beyond say, uh, rhetoric for, say, uh, you know, our own forces and so forth, on to Berlin, that kind of thing. You know, we had never seriously planned to conduct an operation you know, say into the Hartz Mountain area, and say, you know, uh, say to to the Elbe and into uh, you know Czechoslovakia and uh, Austria. Never been in the cards. Uh, you know, we had just never thought we would get that far. We, the, you know, the Soviet armies were closer. Uh, they were built up. They had a, a massive punch behind them, and, and again, they were closer. We just always figured they would do it, but like uh, they would they would get there first. And it was just, there was no serious planning for us to be pushing for further east. Uh, but as German uh, opposition became sporadic in, say, uh, the uh, March and April time frame, it was, we had to kind of start looking at stuff like that, like because we can't just let German forces sit there, you know, and we, and we can't just sit here. If there are German, you know, the basic mission is to destroy the German army. It wasn't to take Berlin. It's to destroy the German army. And uh, if, if we've got light opposition in front of us in some places uh, and heavy opposition in other places, we just adjust accordingly and we're going to, we're going to assault. 
We had commanders who were very anxious to do that. Sometimes these spearheads of ours, as in, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, you know, you get places, uh, they were not like Chemence, I'm probably mis. I'm, I'm mispronouncing it. I'll have to go back in and find some of the places where we were running into a lot of trouble. We were, we were, getting, uh, we were getting some of our fingers broken off here and there, or at least getting pushed. You know, there was uh, forces were moving into Germany, not as a clenched or mailed fist, but, uh, but in many ways they resembled what was going into Manchuria when the, the Japanese, you know, were laying down their arms. Which is uh, and the Soviets were bypassing them. You know, let other troops take care of them later. You know, we were running into the, the same thing, uh, but but then you would run into like fierce opposition. The Elbe is where we were, ended up running in to a certain amount of uh, stiff opposition uh, for almost a week before the final collapse of German forces, and uh, we reached several cities. This is this is in that chapter that you were talking about. I think it was four. Uh, we reached a number of uh, places along the uh, Elbe River. Bridges were blown up like right in the faces of, of uh, troops who were trying to get across. Uh, and in the second armored division, the uh, uh, one of the most uh, praised units of the American army uh, then and in, and in years uh, later, uh, they they were on, they had only one failed river crossing assault and it happened to be at the Elbe. It was south of and I'm probably mispronouncing this town's name Magburg. Um, Marburg, yeah. They got yeah they got three they got three battalions across, but we had outrun our air support. We couldn't get and we certainly couldn't get any tanks across at that point. And the three battalions were systematically chewed up and uh, were withdrawn under cover of darkness and some small groups. You know, the following night, but uh, the United States Army just really hadn't planned for it and didn't have uh, didn't really have any strength behind those dashes that were go that were heading into central Germany uh, just was not planned for at all. And uh, we could make that happen by a decision to make it happen, but that decision was not going to come because we had obligations in terms of timetables that had to be met. <clears throat> and you had asked this at the very beginning of your uh, discussion for the Pacific, because we've got 16 divisions initially and then four divisions after that that are all going to be pulled out of Europe and be sent to the Pacific. And shipping timetables are tight. Invasion timetables against Japan were all structured around weather patterns in the east. We had to get our troops from Europe and one of our air forces that ends up being the 8th. You're familiar with the 8th operating out of England. Uh, we had to get those forces out and operating in and and meeting very specific timetables all goes back to that logistic and support stuff 
that a lot of your readers have no interest in. <laughs> but uh, but they had to meet specific timetables because things had to be done work work within the proper time frame relating to weather patterns uh, in the Far East, which involved. Uh, massive typhoons that occur on certain times of the year, the wet season uh, that occurs at a slightly different time in Kyushu than it does on Tokyo Plain. Uh, Kyushu operations had to be wrapped up by a certain time, and the air, the massive air brace structure on Kyushu to support the thrust to the Tokyo Plain had to be constructed. Uh, within a time frame that would allow it to be in operation to allow, again, then allow the invasion of the Tokyo Plain area, which had to be done early enough so that it was not adversely affected by the rainy season and subsequently the typhoon season. I mean, all this stuff had, had, had to be met. And the thing is, is we're gonna be taking initially, we had four categories of divisions after Germany surrendered. There's the category ones for the occupation, the category two designation for the uh, invasion of Japan. Uh, you've got the uh, category uh, three that are just going to be, basically they're the demobilization divisions, uh, that the divisions that are just going to cease to exist become completely extinct, and their personnel is going to be going to a number of different places. They're going to go to the Category 4 divisions, which means they've got enough points, combat points, that they're going to be you know, just shipped home and be let loose out of the Army and back into the civilian world, or they don't have enough points, and they're going to be used as replacements for the uh, category two high point men who are being just sent home to go, you know, back into the civilian world. But essentially those, those category one and category two divisions, category one's the occupation, category two is uh, the uh, is downfall of the re redeployment. And 16 divisions initially are part of that. And then once the occupation is full, stabilized four more. Ultimately, 20 divisions are going to disappear from Europe and end up in the Pacific. And it all had to meet, a very, again, very specific timetables. So we're looking at Berlin now. We can, theoretically, if the decision is made, go into Berlin. But it's not, it's not something that can seriously be done. Like, like for one thing, everybody within the hierarchy knows that these divisions, and they're principally coming out of Third Army, Patton's Third Army, and the rest were from a variety of other armies, uh, Seventh, uh, you know, the, uh, the First, the Ninth, they're coming from a variety of different uh, armies, but about half of them are coming out of Patton's Army, and originally Patton's Third is going to be the designated headquarters. Politics ended up making it the first, much to the great chagrin of Patton. That's also uh, that's also been obscured from history, and it's another subject. Those divisions, you know, we we have basically fulfilled our mission. 
I mean, it's it's very and interesting. We've got, and we've got other and we've got other things to do. We've got we've got to do the invasion of Japan and a lot of this and a lot of our force in Europe. United States is only so big. It only has so many divisions. You can only raise so many divisions. You can only add a, properly support so many divisions. And because of that, a bunch of what's in Europe has got to immediately start getting shipped out to the Far East, specifically the Philippines to the infrastructure being built there. And so the thing is, is at one point, uh, <clears throat> Eisenhower asked Bradley, okay, if we decide to do Berlin, what's it going to cost us? And Bradley says, well, it'll probably cost us 100,000 men. And the thing is, is, you know, Bradley thought of this in terms of being a high price to pay for, for, a, for a prestige objective. At Eisenhower's level of command, it's like, well, obviously we can't do this. And Marshall in, uh, and Marshall's, you know, staff in the Pentagon back in the War Department, you know, they know it can't be done. And, I mean, nobody, no one in the U.S. chain ever seriously considers going at Berlin. The, and, and making a lunge at Berlin because, for example, if you expend, we'll take a nice word for it, if you expend 100,000 men taking Berlin, then that utterly throws off, ultimately, national war aims because that means that you've, you've, disrupted, you've disrupted the Category 2 redeployment to the Pacific uh, and... Not only that, but you really do have to, you've, you've also disrupted the occupation of Germany itself. I mean, you've got to, re, you've got to have replacements for, uh, so many things become disrupted. We hadn't planned for it. Nobody, nobody, even, nobody even suggested it at the time. Uh, SLA Marshall, who was the official U.S. Army historian uh, for uh, the period, I should have had some of his comments in the earlier printings of Hell to Pay, but I, uh, relating to Berlin and how this was not even a controversy at the time. Nobody even, even thought to, to make such a crazy suggestion as to have us actually push there. There were commanders. Ninth uh, Army commander wanted to do it, and uh, Patton, if he had been further north, probably would have wanted to, to do it. <clears throat> but it was... Uh, it was just not something that anybody would even suggest doing. And thankfully, this time, I had the presence of mind to put in the, uh, the comments of SLA Marshall on how this later became a big political uh, question, unlike why did we not drive to Berlin? Well, the answer was, is that while we had spearheads on the Elbe, those spearheads were being, you know, beat up pretty darn bad by German forces. Uh, we had only one very small bridgehead. We can force the issue if we really wanted to, but that would mean the entire center of gravity of an army group would have to, in effect, move east. And that center of gravity was still on the other side of the Rhine. And it would have utterly dis it would have utterly disrupted everything 
to try for us to try and do it. It was an impossibility. Nobody would even bring it up, and it didn't get brought up except in very uh, tangential ways, where like people would talk about uh, the uh, matters relating to the uh, the uh, the disposition of troops and how they weren't really where they were needed and so forth. Because you know, among themselves, the generals talking in their shorthand knew what they were saying, but unless you understood logistic matters and we're just looking at grand strategy why didn't they go into berlin all the answer was is our center of gravity was still way the heck to the west we couldn't go there without disrupting national war aims and for that matter agreements with the soviets and the british i mean ain't happening there was really no one other than say churchill who was really pushing to have this done uh but uh, but he had no troops he could send there either. You know his his troops are having trouble getting their way moving up north towards Denmark. You know like uh, he if anybody was going to do it it was going to be us and he was trying to get us to do it and we, we certainly were not going to be able to do it. Um, yeah, actually... and imagine Eisenhower having to explain to Stalin that like well no because he'd been in communications with Stalin, uh, you know, on like where the, where the stop lines were going to be so that we didn't have forces, you know, whacking into each other. Um, and uh, imagine him saying, oh, we've changed our mind and our forces are now going to be sent here and here instead of where I told you two weeks ago. I mean, uh, but as I said, it became a big political matter later because really it was only Churchill... Churchill really was the only one who saw that Berlin, Berlin would be the apex of, of, the, of, a, of a grim and long-term struggle that would last literally decades. And, uh, uh, but at the time, it's like I said, the U.S. Army had done its job and, uh, it, and, and it had places to go and things to do and a real darn tight timetable if they were going to get them done. Oh, I'm going back to that that nasty logistic question <laughs> that we were talking about. And, and the, logistics weather. The, the irony here is that I think Churchill stated basically before D-Day that the British can support with, with D-Day and everything, but then the Americans have to take over because the British were running out of manpower themselves. And Oh, yeah, manpower was a big deal. And, 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 and in fact, ideal... I deal with the manpower uh, question in, uh, oh, let's see, which the heck chapter was that? Yeah, I deal with the, uh, well, actually, man, manpower and the, the Pacific and the whole, and manpower for... question, it's, it's all, it's really all over, all over this, uh, this book. Yeah, and chapter nine, the manpower box. Yeah, that, 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 that is uh, spinning the casualties, chapter two. Yeah, this was how we were releasing the casualty uh, data uh, to the American public through the war and the different things that were done and how uh, what the casualties were and how the information was being released. Yeah, then we had the first Army in Kowantung redeployments, the Pacific buildup in Berlin decision. Oh, here's that quote from Willoughby. Not a recipe for, for victory. victory. Yeah. Oh, and the basic Japanese strategy is the title was used in the uh, for chapter one. The maximum quote bloodletting and delay, and whether it is the uh, Soviets in uh, in Manchuria or us in first 
Kyushu, and then on the Kanto Plain. That was the whole idea. Bleed, bleed them. Bleed the U.S., bleed the Russians until, uh, until they just stopped coming. And we can lose a quarter, a fifth or a quarter of our population and still come out ahead. And they had a very different outlook on life, a more extreme outlook than even the Russians did. I think some author noted that nearly everyone claims that he will fight to the last man and to the last bullet, but only the Japanese did consistently do this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, both, both the Russians in Manchuria and ourselves, yeah, we weren't, we weren't collecting these massive numbers of prisoners till the, till, and if you'll excuse my language here, until the, or, until the emperor damn well ordered him to do it. And it's often forgotten the military agreed to acquiesce to the emperor's uh, directive. And that's a close run thing. And interestingly enough, that is covered in a number of, uh, in, in a number of books, that the, the difficulty in getting the military to agree uh, to it. Uh, and, uh, but again, it's something that's generally, uh, that's reasonably well known within some circles. But again, you're getting most, most uh, World War II history, quite frankly, and unless you happen to be Chinese, is Eurocentric. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one interesting aspect which I want to preempt, which is probably going to be a, a comment from people. They usually say, why not starve out the Japanese islands? And from what I know, basically, the, the Navy and the Army both saw the problem that the, 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 the American support for the war was dwindling down. And the Navy said, okay, we starve them out to reduce casualties on our side. Potential. And the, had the potential for dwindling. Yeah, had, had it, the potential. It had not dwindled yet. But if you just have armies sitting. Yeah, then, then it's going to be a problem. And the army was thinking, okay, we, we, we push so fast as possible that we still have the support. So basically, they, they both saw the same problem and they had different solutions. The Navy was, was like more staffed them out and the army was more, okay, let's assault them. So basically, yeah, there were, were this yeah, thing. Where the Navy, where the Navy ran into its problems and at the high-level decision-making was is that uh, na Navy, naval and air staff advocates for starving them out could not, no one could, uh, could come up with a reasonable... Time frame? A time frame in which something like that yeah. would work. And, and you can't just be having this indefinite war with five million men in the Western Pacific as you're waiting for something to happen. Because the Japanese, quite frankly, with their different mindset, they were quite willing to, they had at other periods in their history, endured starvation. They're, they're willing to endure starvation again. There were people in the general staff, and this is dealt with in the book, who quite reasonably, from the Japanese military standpoint, pointed to the China model on the willingness to absorb casualties over an extended period and starvation and still emerge victorious. Now, one of the things as far as getting the military to finally agree 
is that the Jap- there, there were signs the Japanese po- uh, population, there were enough signs of restiveness historically that they worried that the population in Japan could, you know, for all of, for all of the, you know, uh, for all of the firm, uh, for all of the firm, for all of the firm assurances that the Japanese population would like tough it through, you know, really they, they wondered, you know, once you start having people starving and families are starving, uh, is the are, are the will our people really take this? You know, uh, there there have been communist inroads, and they talked about the about possible communist inroads, and that there and that the communists would take advantage of this and possibly try and take over the country. This has been dealt. This has been dealt with. It's actually a pretty pretty heavy amount of documentation on this. That was a uh, that was at least a factor among the thinking of some of the senior military people and some of the senior uh, civilian. Uh, some of the senior civilian advisors within the imperial circle, but but if one wants to be more uh, basic about it from a military standpoint, one of the things that was that that showed up in terms of that uh, showed up again in later interrogations and in the Tokyo war crimes trials was this idea after the two atomic bombs in quick succession and the Russian declaration of war. And see, there was an atomic bomb target set of four cities. The idea, uh, and approved by Truman, was to basically be dropping them as quickly as they were ready, because the idea was to drop them at a fairly a fairly steady pace so the Japanese could clearly see that it was not one bomb. And then the military and Japanese scientists after Hiroshima had maintained firmly, well, this is such an enormous, you know, project. Uh, and the Germans themselves have told us that this is such an, an enormous project that like, you know, they might be able to get the fissionable material for one bomb, you know, to try and intimidate us. But, you know, the people who were underground survived and they're not going to have more of these. And see, that was anticipated by the interim committee and, and Washington and so forth, that these would be arguments that were going to be used. And so the whole idea was to use these and to use them in a, as soon as, as quickly as they were available so that it would be clearly seen that it was, that this was something that existed and could be made to exist in quantity. And as one, uh, I, I, I think it might've been Suzuki said at the time, well, all the all the Americans have got to do is just keep dropping atomic bombs on us. This was after Nagasaki. Nagasaki was the turning point in terms of like a, a number of the people in what the Japanese called their peace party, a senior leadership structure. And the military still wanted to keep fighting, though. Yeah. Uh, they were they, their their line changed at that point from well the Americans can only produce one of these two well we're going to be underground and so it won't really affect us and they'll still have to invade because the military desperately f- for their uh, I, for their bloodletting and to let and delay to be accomplished they had to get an American invasion they had to provoke an invasion 
and everything in terms of what they saw, both directly from their own uh, intelligence, be it in the Pacific or through other embassies, you know, just showed this massive buildup and and the readiness to go in and get the war over with. So basically, the 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 waiting for an invasion was was a kind of winning strategy in their mind. Oh yeah, it's yeah. So when does blockade and bombardment become become effective if they're willing to? Who who's going to outlast each other? The guy if it's uh. You know, rather than having the gunfight in the street, you've got uh, you've got a guy with uh, hostages, say, in the store. And we're taking it to an old West analogy here. You know, ra rather than the gunfight in the street, you've got a guy who is holding hostages. The hostages in this case being the Japanese civilian population, just as much as say uh, radical Islamists hold their own populations hostage. Uh, in the Middle East, or their own people, their own people within areas they control, uh, they're essentially hostages, and they're ho and they don't particularly care about their hostages. They have wider desires, wider aims, and the Japanese were quite when they say, well, as like you said, to the last and the man and the last bullet. Well, you could also say to the last civilian hostage. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's where that's where uh, if if we uh, I think one of the quotes uh, at the time was if we this was after the Potsdam Declaration, if we which which they thought which they recognized was not calling for the emperor to be booted out of there or arrested. It was directed solely at the military. And they saw that that as being very different than what had been imposed upon the German people. And at this, and they saw the Potsdam pot, uh, pot, uh, the Potsdam proclamation as being something that supported their arguments to like hold out. If we and if we do not give in now, they will give in to us. So uh, yeah, the Japanese mindset. You, you got to throw off kind of a European or an American mindset and kind of look at it, uh, look at it from their standpoint. And they were not looking at it the way we do. Yeah, I think this is to a certain degree similar to the previous situation with appeasement because appeasement by the yep. British in the 19th century was actually a strategy that worked. But it didn't work against Hitler because, well, he, had, he had, was a Nazi and he had a different ideology. And you can't, to a certain degree, if you make no negotiations with someone, you have to share value bases, which I think is, well, is and a very that, important thing it, nowadays, even yes, too. Absolutely. And beyond that with Hitler, he looked upon uh, the, he understood their appeasement tendencies and policy. And so he said, okay, I can work with this. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so this was something he knew very specifically he could work with, and you know the Japanese, you know they read American newspapers, and weigh them out. Yeah, the Americans, you know, hey, three years from now, if they don't invade, so what? They're not going to keep five the the clamor a year from now to bring five those five million guys home, you know, hey. Let them send them to Germany, where they already have an occupation. So, so in, a, in a way, I mean, this goes now alternative history, alternative history. But if the Japanese didn't attack Pearl Harbor, but would have attacked the British, 
Well, the two could have gone very differently, I guess, to a certain degree. Yeah. Well, see, what the thing with hell to pay is I very, very, very specifically, and you've probably noticed this, kept way the heck away from alternative history. What I focused on was U.S. plans, Japanese plans, now more, uh, now more recently, much more of an emphasis on Soviet plans. The British, you know, enter into this as well. I'm talking about actual planning as it existed. I, you know, I don't get into the alternative history. There's really a lot more. Uh, rather than getting into counterfactual analyses, which can be a lot of fun and can be uh, really an, an interesting way of like exploring different ideas and, and so forth. Counterfactual, uh, you know, analysis can, you know, can kind, of, can kind of have its place, but I very specifically kept away from it here, as you probably noticed, to what were they actually planning? What's in the documents and how are they carrying this out? So now others can take a look at this and get and do you know, this is probably a good base for somebody to do counterfactual analysis from, perhaps. But like, I try to stick pretty close to like, this is what they're planning. And this is how they are carrying out the planning up to the point at which they have, you know, uh, the war has ended. And this is what their planning was to carry it further. Now, how that would play out? Well, hey, here, let's get, let's do those counterfactuals, but I'm doing pro-factuals. What are we doing? Progressively moving forward from what we have, like, you know, looking at pro-factuals, not counterfactuals. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people actually, a lot of my viewers request from me alternative history, alternate history, and, and I usually tell them, I need a few more years because I want to know all the facts because for instance now this again so for me it's usually alternative history is usually done very superficially usually if you, well, if you listen the to thing them is, is and, it's and tricky I, f I think we basically covered <laughs> nearly everything Probably and beyond you cover. Yeah. <laughs> I will mention this other thing and this is the thing that gets dicey about alternative history is that if you don't if you don't know the uh, if you don't know the basics behind a lot of the decisions, and again, which works back to logistics in many cases, uh, you know, you'll have alternative history that's just wasting your time. Like they talk about, well, why didn't the United States attack from the north? You know, why didn't we go through the Aleutian Islands? Well, because there's fantastically bad weather there and we can't do an adequate buildup. And it says, well, even if you can't uh, do an adequate buildup and assault from uh, the north, uh, you know, you could still make if the Japanese are way down in the south. Why don't you uh, why don't you attack, say, up? Uh, why don't you attack the north, uh, say, in Hokkaido or northern Honshu from the south? Well, because to do that. It takes five times more shipping because instead of doing a direct route under U.S. air cover, all the shipping now has to travel 
about four times more distance and be, and to stay out of the range of Japanese air power, you've got to go way out into the Pacific and up and down. So it's like, you know, they'll say, well, why don't you do this? Well, you don't do it because you can't support it. And so you'll say so the thing, the dicey thing about alternative history is a lot of the people that do it. And again, it's fun. It's fun stuff. But like they will say stuff that they will, or they will say they will make uh, make uh, ex- they will extrapolate from things that they don't really know that much about. Because yeah. again, whatever you do has to be logistically sustainable. It has to be able to be sustained over time. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, gee, logistics, logistics, logistics. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to slap my face. You hear me saying that so much, you know. Just blame it on the just blame it on the staff college. <laughs> Then thank you very much for this very well, interesting welcome. talk.